Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Assumption is that an independent central bank will raise interest rates in order to attract money into the country to finance the budget deficit, hence pushing up the currency. I have never seen anything like this. I've been an economist for 50 years. I went through the Great Recession. I have never seen such raging incompetence ever. Why, is the pound, why did the pound initially fall? Well, that's what my former Treasury colleague, Dario Perkins, called the, quote, moron risk premium, unquote. It's not a debt crisis. Britain is not Greece. It's not Argentina. You issue the currency in which you borrow. And that means that um, uh, you're never going to have the problems that Greece had or Argentina did. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we are continuing our series over the Christmas holiday period, looking at five economists that Steve Keen thinks that you should know about. People who have influenced his own thinking and who you should at least research a little about to see how, just maybe, traditional economists have got things wrong. Last week, he was Irving Fisher. This week, it's Richard Goodwin and his theory of trade cycles. That's this week on the Debanking Economics Podcast. Well, yes, we are, of course, looking at five, maybe six. We'll see how long we can go for this. But looking at it, and an economist you should know about each week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So, Steve, today we're going to look at Richard Goodwin, uh, perhaps not one of the world's best-known economists. But he it's, should be. He should be. He okay, should be. fair to say. He was born in Indiana in 1913. He went to Harvard. He taught at Harvard as well. Mm. He left America during the McCarthy era because he had to. Mm. So that tells you a little bit about his politics. I think he was uh, in the Communist Party, wasn't he, when he moved yeah. to the, the UK. Yeah. He ended up teaching uh, economics at Cambridge. And another one who believed that economics is not a linear system. And, uh, yeah, and he's the strongest advocate of nonlinear thinking in the history of economics. Right. That's why he should be so That's important. quite a claim. Yeah, yeah well, I, I can't think of anybody else who, in, in the same systemic way, focused upon non-linearity and instability. Schumpeter did it verbally. Goodwin did it mathematically as well as verbally. And one little fun little fact here is that even though like Goodwin was a student of Schumpeter, but Schumpeter sat in on, on Goodwin's classes on mathematics to try to work out because the one thing Schumpeter didn't think he could handle and he was right was mathematics. Right? But Goodwin had the gift of, of seeing the instability of the system and then being able to build mathematical models that generated that instability. So, um, yeah, if you've got a linear system, then it's fairly easy to see w- w- what it's contained within. And if you've got a non-linear system, then you're throwing in a lot of variables and you, you, you might have factors which could suddenly spiral out of control, for example. So does that mean a non-linear system is not contained and it could take you it anywhere? It's contained within the, the structure of the system as a whole. The, the hassle about a linear model is that it's not contained within its own structure. Because if you like... See, the, your oh, desk, yeah, because it could just keep on spiraling in a well, particular Well, see, your desk, your desk looks linear, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, now if I roll a ball bearing off this desk, it'll fall off in one metre. 
Okay? Yeah. It's linear for a meter. That's it. Yeah. It, to be truly linear, you'd need to have your desk hitting Alpha Centauri. Okay. So there is a, there is an, even a linear system has a break in it in the real world. But when you put a mathematical model together, there is no break. Okay. So the linearity goes on for infinity in a, in a mathematical model, and therefore you can get this you know sustained. Um, uh, movement, which can't happen in a nonlinear system, it'll either roll away or roll back. So nonlinearity has a huge impact, and nonlinearity is the rule. Uh, I've seen, I think it's Vela Pillai uh, who made the argument that talking about nonlinear systems is like t- talking about non-elephant elephants. Okay, <laughs> they're all elephants. Forget it. There's no such thing as a non-elephant elephant. So, um, with a, every system is nonlinear. So when when we when we trivialize a system just to look at its linearity, then we distort it as well. Whereas Goodman said we have to think about things in a nonlinear way. Well, he was saying, in fact, it has to be nonlinear by definition, which I think yeah. is what you're saying. If there's a linear approach, then uh, it uh, it can just keep growing. But the fact that it doesn't must mean that there's other factors at play which are yeah. stopping like, that the, happening. The classic nonlinearity, and this is what Goodwin used in his most famous most important paper, uh, the uh, a growth cycle, which is trivial, like three pages long or five pages long article in a book. He presented it once at a Econometrica uh, conference and therefore it got into Econometrica as, a th- I think, literally about a three-pager or even less than that. Uh, so it's tiny content. But his fundamental linearity was wages times labor. Because if you look at out, if you have a, a two-class system, so you analyze capitalism in terms of workers and capitalists and leave out bankers, et cetera, et cetera, then whatever do- doesn't go to workers goes to capitalists. Okay? So output minus wages times labor is the profit rate. Okay? Now, wages times labor are two variables multiplied together. That's your nonlinearity. Mm. So if you have a boom going on, you're going to be hiring more workers to work in your factories, and that's also going to mean the workers get bargaining power and the wages go up. So you're going to increase in wages and an increase in labor at the same time, which is like a quasi-quadratic. So you, you're, if you think in terms of, of, of income as shares, you've got you know, Y divided by Y is 1. So that's your, you know, your 1 minus. Well, it's going to be wages times labor divided by Income. So what you've got is two terms on the on the numerator and one on the denominator. The one the two terms will dominate, and you'll get a, as the boom goes on, the profit share will fall. Okay, now that's not what capitalists are expecting. So and that's the nonlinearity that gives you the cyclical behaviour. So he's quite fixated with Ricardo, wasn't he? He seemed to spend quite a lot of time. So no, Ricardo was a bit of a classicist, wasn't he? I mean, he was. You mean Goodwin or no? Goodwin was quite fixated with. Ricardo. Oh, he, he, he was he was fascinated with anybody who tried to build an analytic foundation for right. the economy. I mean, he was frustrated by a lot of his colleagues. Mm. So, for example, like Goodwin, uh, he was a. All the people we're talking about here are, are, are geniuses. Okay, they are people who are incredibly gifted, not just highly intelligent, but capable of of. of innovative thinking strands as well. And what he found frustrating was dealing with people who couldn't put things in mathematical form, and and they would therefore make propositions which were mathematically impossible. So the classic there is Harrod. 
Now, Harrod gave us, and we should actually talk about Roy Harrod. Maybe add Harrod to the list of right. people this, to talk this could about. Go, it's, it's fair. This might go on forever. It could indeed. Do you know okay. what? We're coming up for 300 episodes, though, so we could do the next 300 just on Economists. Have you got enough of those? Oh, <laughs> 300, my God. <laughs> I okay. know. That's how long we've been talking. For five and, years. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so back, back to Harrod. So Harrod was trying to build a model of cyclical behavior with what amounted to a linear, linear equation. Okay? He had... I've forgotten the actual dy dt equals s over g. Uh, but it was a very simple argument. And he then talked about instability giving you a knife edge of behavior either side. And the only way it could bring it back to be giving you a cycle of behavior, hitting a ceiling or a floor and bouncing off the ceiling or the floor. So Goodwin tried to get Harrod to realize that. And Harrod, A, got angry about this little undergraduate telling him what to do. And, and B, and so he didn't acknowledge uh, that the Goodwin was the source of Harrod's inspiration for the turning points. Um, but he also mathematically mangled what Goodwin was trying to achieve. So you see this sense of frustration with Goodwin in dealing with economists who either could think mathematically in equilibrium terms or couldn't think at all outside equilibrium. And he was capable of thinking outside equilibrium with non-equilibrium mathematics. So which is worse, an economist who, who, who is mathematically quite able mm. or somebody who just takes on the theory uh, but can't prove it because they can't do the mathematics. Yeah, I think they're both pretty problematic. You do, you do need, you, I mean... You need, you need both, though, you don't need, you? You need both. The capacity to, th- to think, you know, in a holistic sense mm. and to express that to some extent in mathematics. And the best argument I've seen about this came from... I've forgotten his name, but he was a guy who came to University of Western Sydney when I was uh, lecturing there, and he gave one of the, one of the seminars. He was an expert on religious interpretations of economics. And he argued uh, a beautiful proposition that when you look at the classical economists, the Ricardos and, 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 uh, and, and Malthuses and so on, who predate uh, the development of, well, not calculus, obviously, but nonlinear dynamics and, and so on, he said what they were doing is talking in terms of verbal differential equations. They said what you can do is take what they've said verbally and put it into a differential equation and then see whether their verbal statements actually make sense in the, in the differential. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Um, so but the, the, the classical school predates the obsession with putting things in mathematical terms. That obsession began in the, 19, in the 1860s and 70s and what they were doing was aping the physics of 30 or 40 years earlier before physicists had developed the ideas of the laws of thermodynamics et cetera, et cetera, and complex systems as well. So the, the, the mathematics that economists got themselves obsessed with was equilibrium me- me- mechanical, uh, you know, balancing a stick on, a, on another stick type definitions of equilibrium rather than the very complex visions that came out of physics in the, in the, at the same time as the economists were writing, the 1860s and 70s, or when th- the whole laws of thermodynamics non-equilibrium systems started to be developed, economists had ossified themselves in an equilibrium way of thinking 30 or 40 years earlier without even knowing they'd done it. So that's where I think a lot of the mathematics, mathematical garbage comes from in economics. As, as I said, they don't do mathematics, they do mythematics because they're trying to hang on to this equilibrium concept. But everything that came after that period pointed the equilibrium was unstable. And the neoclassicals don't want to know about unstable equilibria. The classical school could cope with it. People like Fisher and Goodwin could cope with it. 
and that's the direction we should have gone in rather than wasting our time with the neoclassicals. So he he um, gave an example of, which I've heard you use this example. Mm. Uh, you must have stolen it from him. I did, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Talking about weather systems and saying, you know, that's a good example of a sort of a, 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 a dynamic, chaotic, a chaotic dynamic system. Yeah. Uh, in that there's so many variables there, which well, are well. In fact, you don't need so many variables, and this is this is the insight that that Goodwin had as well, which was beyond what Hayek could consider, because Hayek also understood the importance of in, instability and disequilibrium in capitalism. That's one plus positive for the Austrian school that Hayek is part of. But Hayek believed. Uh, complex systems meant complicated systems, lots and lots of moving parts. The true definition of a complex system is simply three or more interacting nonlinear variables, okay? interacting in a nonlinear way. So you, and, and the, the mathematical logic behind it is that if you describe a dynamic system using differential equations and you have just two differential equations, then the, the dynamics of the system can be described on a flat surface. Okay. Now, that flat surface, a dynamic system, uh, starting from a particular set of initial conditions, cannot intersect any other course in the same system starting from a different set of different... Well, it, 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 it can't... A particular dynamic path can't interact with another one from different initial conditions. Okay? So the easier way to think about this is if you imagine if you start... from Let's say I start in this point in your desk and I start doing a spiral, okay? then I can't intersect the spiral. Okay. The spiral must continue going in the direction. Out and out and out. Out yeah. and out and out. So it, or go in and in and in. Okay? Mm-hmm. Or I can just continue repeating the same thing. Those are your three choices. Okay? So you can't get complex dynamics out of a two-dimensional system. When you do a three-dimensional system, your uh, phase system is not a flat surface. It's a box. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in a box, you can continue looping your fingers around in such a way that you never quite intersect any path you've already been on. And therefore, your dynamic system can be very complicated, very complex, okay, with just three variables. And that's, Goodwin was the master at taking a, 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 a verbal proposition and turning it to a two or but three you're, dimensional. But you're just saying, okay, but you're saying, yes, you're, you're taking a, a path for something and moving it in into different dimensions. But mm. there's... A multitude of factors they're going to influence well, what direction all, all, only that takes. Three. All you need is three. Okay. So, like, if you look at the weather system, which is like the, the weather is basically the behavior of a fluid. Okay. Right. Fluid in a but space. But it's driven by temperatures in different parts of the of, of the earth by prevailing wind yeah, conditions. Yeah, wind, wind, but you by... don't even need those. And this is like the, the the main insight here came out of Lorenz. We're talking about people that Goodwin was inspired by, rather than uh, uh, people that. Goodwin read at the time. But Lorenz did his work in 1963, okay? And Lorenz's model took what's called, I think it's the the Navier-Stokes equations, which were incredibly complicated equations of fluid dynamics, partial differential equation, temperature variation, and location variation. And uh, when you go further, when you add in like the weather, you get the humidity variation and so on and so forth. So yes, very, very complicated. But he took that, and I think it's an 11-dimensional system. It's quite huge, uh, described by you know, uh, a whole range of mathematics that's beyond me these days. Um, but he reduced it to just th- three ordinary differential equations. Okay? And his expectation was when he plotted it that you'd get a sort of stable cycle coming out of it. And when he plotted it, um, he got these crazy cycles which just didn't seem to make any sense. So he told his 
um, this is Lorenz, told whoever was doing the calculations for him to rerun them. And the machine they were using was accurate to six decimal places internally, and the printer was accurate to four. So what the, he gave him the printout and said, type these numbers in from this particular point and see what happens, thereby truncating two of the decimal places and got a completely different pattern. But doesn't it depend on what you're putting in? And you know what the assumptions you're making. I mean, uh, no, it, it's when you reduce it to such a simple model. There's this three. We, again, we're miles off from Goodwin, but we'll come yeah, back yeah, to him. Yeah. Uh, when you reduce it to just three equations, the Lorenz equation, which is the foundation of the understanding that the weather system is chaotic, has three variables and three and three parameters. That's it. Okay, you'd be hard pressed to find a simpler model. So just with three variables, which are x, which are the, um, it, it's. The, the the actual reduction of them is quite complicated, but it's like the X and Y location of a, of a, a spot of water on a hot plate, and then how how the the curvature of the system, and those three alone give you this incredibly complex behaviour. You don't need to think that it's complicated to get complex. Right, but it's but if you if you so what you're saying is it's quite simple in a way. Once you've hit upon what the combination is going to be, but it's, but the world, but the world is more complicated. Than yeah, that, but because I mean, a weather. I mean, comparing with weather systems is perhaps not a great analogy because because the weather does what the weather does, and we we I mean we are influencing it obviously through climate change, but day to day it's doing what it wants to do, whereas the economy is driven by human behavior and you, you, and but, many many other factors as well yeah but like and, and that's disease. the end that the the austrians focus upon in the neoclassicals as well the behavioral these individual elements fundamentally what goodman was saying is you reduce it to a, to a, a few simple uh, principles and you'll get the basic instability the basic instability of capitalism coming out of that so he in, like in terms of the the, the, good, the goodwin model which is the 1967 yeah. paper yeah. which i find very hard to read and again the best I, mean, I read Goodwin. I've uh, forgotten when I would have read him, but sometime in the seventies, most likely. Um, Before you get to that, just an observation yeah. generally yeah. about economist papers, right? Yeah, it seems like you have to go through. If you go through more than three sentences without a formula, then you <laughs> then you fail with an economist, even if the formula is just so basic it can actually be described in two sentences. In plain English, but no, let's let's yeah, let's let's stick a formula there, and, and that's what um, Phil Murawski talks about: this uh, obsession with putting things in mathematical form rather than using mathematics as a guide. Yeah, and I think it's completely accurate. Yeah, uh, but it's almost as though they don't want people to understand. Yeah, and and like Goodwin wasn't a good person to read when it can, like in terms of writing style, I find Goodwin's text the hardest to interpret. Um, which is strange because he's actually probably the most artistic of all the people we're talking about. He was a, he was a renowned painter in his own right. His wife read poetry and philosophy to each other, so you'd expect them to have a, a gift of the uh, of writing. But, yeah. but I find him actually quite awkward to read. And when I first read him, I didn't understand it. It was only when I read Blatt, who was a genuine mathematician and also a concert pianist. There's another person we should talk about, John Blatt. Yeah. Um, then I could understand his explanation of Goodwin, but I couldn't understand Goodwin himself. Right. Okay. Because here we are. We're a quarter of an hour into this podcast. I haven't More even than, talked about him yet. Uh, well, we, 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 apart from the fact that he was not, you know, he believed that linear systems don't work and we have to yeah. 
Yeah. Other than that, I'm not quite sure what the takeout is so far. But look, when we come back, well, let's talk about the Goodwin model. And I want to read, he's written to you as well. Uh, so That was uh, rather nice. Yeah. So I, I want to read the letter he wrote to you. Uh, when was this? Back in 1993. So we'll do that as well as soon as we come back. This is the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keane. Uh, stay with us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we're looking at Richard Goodwin this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. And so far, uh, all we've established is the fact that he is an advocate of, uh, of, of non-linear thinking, that, uh, that in fact, linear thinking in economics just doesn't work. Mm. Uh, because if you've been listening for the first 15 minutes, because for some reason, you'll fall off the edge of my desk. Seems to be, <laughs> seems to be the solution to that. Uh, now, uh, so why did he's written to you? Uh, and this is in relation to your Minsky software. So no, for those, no, right. this is totally out of the blue. Because right. I, I see, I think I mentioned in the previous podcast that I realised that uh, that Hyman Minsky's attempt to build a model of his financial instability hypothesis using the Hicks, Harrod, Samuelson second order difference equation model of economic cycles was flawed because the model itself was wrong. So what happened was I was uh, I, I did uh, when I was doing my master's degree. I realized I had to relearn mathematics. So I was doing mathematics, attending uh, first year mathematics lectures while also doing uh, my master's thesis at that stage on Marx. And, um, and we were given an exercise in one of the tutorials of the second order difference equation. And this is where Hicks derived a model of cycles where he had, uh, he had investment being uh, a, a function of the change in output and consumption being a function of output. Okay? And then he put the two together and he got a second-order difference equation. And pardon me, you know, talking, talking equations here, but he had uh, y at t plus 2 equals 1 minus s plus c times y at t uh, plus 1 minus c times y at t. t. Have you got that down? Yeah, okay, right, okay. That now what yeah. That, okay. So that, that is basically, that's an equation which is a second-order difference equation. Uh, S is the rate of savings, and C was uh, called the incremental capital-to-output ratio. So, But C was actually a behavioural term. What C was saying was the desired, desired investment will be this constant C multiplied by the change in output in the previous two years. Now, that is not actual investment. That is desired investment. Mm. Okay, But he equated this equation for desired investment to the equation for actual savings. Now, there is no theory of economics that says they're equal to each other. Okay, Keynes says actual savings will be equal to actual investment, ex post, 
when you measure the two. No theory of economics says that the desired level of investment will equal the actual level of savings. Well, how can it? Exactly. Okay. Because so the, the answer the, the, is if output is zero. Okay. Right. So this is what I and I realise this because by doing the mathematics lectures, mathematics had moved on when I from when I first learned it back in 1971 my undergrad days, and there's so much more computing around. So mathematicians end up being servants to whatever discipline is dominant. When I went through in 71, engineering was the dominant discipline. When I started doing this stuff again in 87, 88, uh, computers were dominant. So what people were trying to work out was how do you rapidly solve equations given the physical limitations of computers of the 19... 70s and 80s, we had a tiny amount of memory to work with. So you had to find efficient ways to reduce uh, mathematical expressions or to, to you know get simulation working. So there were what's called the um, uh, you you take a, a a difference equation like the like the second order difference equation, you convert it into two first order equations, and then using those first order equations, you derive a matrix, and then you'd work out the properties of the matrix. So that's what was being done in mathematics. So when I first learned uh, economics as an undergraduate, uh, used what the approach was to call the characteristic equation. So you'd take uh, a, an equation, which a difference equation or a differential equation, and you'd say, I can make this look like a polynomial. So a first order difference or differential equation would come out as a linear equation, y equals ax plus a, is a plus b times x. A second order equation would come out as y equals you know, a plus b x plus c times x squared. And so when you got the values of the parameters a, b, and c, as a, as, which is simply you know, working out the roots of a quadratic, which everybody knows that's formula from school, uh, it was easy to do. So that was the approach that people did. Now when you got to the 80s when I'm learning uh, mathematics again, it's all about how do you do this efficiently using computer algorithms, and therefore they use matrices to do it, and it's a property of the matrix you've worked out. Worked out. So when you, when you want to get a, a, a dynamic system, you need something which is going to be true for all time, once you define it. Not, yeah. Like, so can work, we, just returning to the, yeah. the English language, just yeah. briefly for a second here. <laughs> so, um, I mean, the, the way I look at it, I mean, if you've got an equation, I mean, it, first of all, it, it's very basic level. An equation is, a, is, a, is, is describing a snapshot, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's a yeah. point. It's describing a point in time that you may then say, okay, if I change some of these variables, then uh, over time I'll get a, a, yeah, an yeah, image of yeah. what's going to happen in the future. Mm. But all of those variables can have their, their own influencing factors. And if you describe a relationship at one point in time, mm. and then you assume that the, that, that relationship, however you've defined it, yeah. like it's two times this, or mm. it's, uh, uh, it, over, it's going to increase at a steady rate, whereas this is going to be influenced by these other factors. Mm. Whatever you put into that equation, mm. um, can give, can give you very different results uh, depending on that relationship between those factors. But at any point, one of those relationships could change because it, there could be the, another it, factor which you've not factored but, in, but, or or there could be a, you, or there you, could be a point at which you reach a uh, a watershed moment where it's going to, you know, this is going to influence, one factor is going to yeah. influence something so more so than it has done in the past. A mathematical example. model will leave that out because, yeah. you, okay, you just got, the only things which can come in are the elements you put into the model itself. At, at, and and at it, therefore, that's where a huge part of the mistakes come from from neoclassical, yeah. they leave yeah. it out. Okay. But yeah. We're talking here fundamentally non-neoclassical economics. Yeah. And so what I realized when I applied this mathematics was that um, 
the, when you have a dynamic system stated using this matrix method, the matrix must be what's called non-invertible. This is getting very jargonistic. Mm. But it, it means that you get Y equals A times X. I did try and bring us back to the English language. Uh, I'd like uh, that to be observed by the listener. I was on your side. You for weren't. A Sorry, yeah. I've got to finish answering this question, which you didn't know you'd asked. Okay. okay. <laughs> but Y equals A times X, we simply say oh, we just divide Y, y divided by uh, A equals X. When you can't do that division, okay, then the y and the x can have any values at all through time. If you can get that division, there's only one value of y and one value of x that'll make that correct. So for a, for a differential equation just to be realistic, the, the equivalent to a constant <coughs> must not be, you, you must not be able to invert it. Like, uh, you know, you can't divide through by zero, okay? Mm. Well, fundamentally, your matrix had to have the property which is similar to being like zero. It can't be possible to divide by it. I applied this mathematics to Hicks's model, and I could divide by it. There's got to be a mistake. Not a, not a mathematical mistake, a logical mistake. So the logical mistake appeared to me to be that he was saying, what level of output will guarantee that desired investment equals actual savings when both savings and investment depend upon income? The answer is zero income. So it's the trivial answer. That's what gave you the fluctuations. You were fluctuating towards a trivial answer. And so I worked that out mathematically. And then I also worked out a way to generate a third order difference equation, which gave you cycles and growth. So I submitted that to the Economic Journal. And I got back a rejection immediately, virtually, on the basis of one referee's comment, some jerk I've forgotten his name. And the reason he rejected my paper was I hadn't quoted his book. Well, that's no, fair enough. I went and read his book, and he's lucky I didn't quote it. Okay, Then, out of the blue, I got a letter from Richard Goodwin. He was the second referee. Right. And so the EJ rejected my paper before they got his positive argument that it should be published. And that's where this letter well, came from. So which says, Dear Steve Keen, very many thanks for sending me your paper on Minsky. I shall give it the attention it deserves. This was the second letter he sent me, by the way. I forgot I've lost the first. Okay. Right, okay. Minsky I have known for a long time. I was teaching money and banking under John Williams, Vice President of the, uh, the Fed in New York, when Minsky sailed into Harvard from Chicago sometime before 1950. Notice the sailed in. It's a very derogatory <laughs> statement. And I have seen him numerous times since in various parts of the world. In fact, like me, he has a house in Italy. Well, lucky him. Mm. Uh, for reasons I shall try to explain, I've always been less than enthusiastic about his work. I wrote my doctorate on the behaviour of money in the UK between the two wars. In it, I came to the conclusion that money was not as important as most economists thought it was. I still hold that view, so I've turned to the real world. I never published my doctoral thesis in consequence. Several years of hard work wasted. I used to do the numbers on a simple calculating machine. The EJ... That's the Economic, Economic Journal. Journal. Uh, send me your splendid piece, and you will, I believe, receive a copy of my favourable report, though you may not agree. I thought some details could be omitted. Probably some of the equations, Steve. Uh, <laughs> for the readers of the EJ, so as to make the article somewhat shorter. <laughs> uh, so I turned away from money, no doubt excessively so, to study production, real wages, etc. If by any chance you find a copy of my last and final book on chaotic dynamics you will see that banks and money are more or less totally neglected. My father was a banker with his own private bank. In the 1930s, the cash crisis meant he had to sell at a great loss most of his fortune in order to pay off all the depositors, not long before the government suddenly guaranteed all depositors. That would hurt, wouldn't it? In order to avoid a total collapse. I was much impressed by your printouts of VizSim, 
Uh, though I am twice retired from Cambridge, UK and Siena, Italy, I still enjoy teaching and do so in Siena without payment. I've been much impressed by the high quality of your work and encourage you to continue, especially in the wider real economy. With best wishes for your future high quality work, yours sincerely, Richard Goodwin. By the way, have you ever thought of doing a podcast? He was ahead of, <laughs> he was well ahead of his time, wasn't he? <laughs> okay. So, There's a certain amount of fiction in the final line there, Cokes. <laughs> so, all right. Well, why did you want me to read that book? I'm not, read well, that, that, that's a, a, the, the generosity and yeah. spirit of the man. Yeah. Um, a, a sense of humility as well, and also the weird confusion. He decides academically that money doesn't matter. But yeah, well, that's was I was reading that and thinking, well, this is yeah. against what we've been talking about so much on this podcast. Yeah, though, and so it? he he got he got it wrong. Okay, uh, I, I I followed his advice in some ways, and like Vizsim became the predecessor of Minsky in that sense too. Um, but I th- I thought you should actually be trying to meld Goodwin's vision, which is the cyclical real cycle, adding in finance as well, which is where I brought in the Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. But the thing that I found crazy was they were in the same university. They could have blended paths and they didn't. This is back in the 60s. Right. So it's just one of those great losses that they they didn't combine at the time because you would have had the melding of the mathematical concepts that Goodwin was good at with the vision that Minsky had, which was, I think, a very the soundest vision of capitalism that I've seen. Right. So, so if they'd spend an evening together, you know, some of those muddying substances. Well, see, and this is that, where the personalities come along because everybody, like, for example, Goodwin was once challenged by a student saying, what are you searching for? And he said, the truth, my dear boy, the truth. Right. So what's uh, so? Tell me about the Goodwin model then, because we haven't yeah. got onto that yet. Haven't we? Okay. Okay. Yeah. It seems like this is his his main. Well, it's not. It's it's by far the most important, but it's by far not not the only one as well. But the basic vision he had was that this that the, you can see the cyclical behaviour of capitalism as being like a predator prey system in the natural world, where you'll have a you just assume you've got a, a like infinite supply of grass, so the rabbits can eat grass to the to the cows come home, and you and there's, there's the rabbits will grow exponentially over time. But then you have foxes who are then hunting the rabbits. And initially, if you start from a small number of rabbits, there'll be fox populations declining because the foxes are starving. Then you, the rabbits are growing exponentially, courtesy of all the food that's around. So you get a rapid increase in the number of foxes as well. The foxes will then uh, get to the point where they eat so many rabbits, the rabbit population declines, the fox population then falls, and you get a a repeating cycle. That's the predator-prey cycle. So what Goodwin saw, and he was actually working with a guy who had developed the mathematics of predator-prey. It was a guy called Corvozzi. Like like Corvozzi, I can't actually pronounce the name properly, but the the first people were were, were Lochter and Volterra, but by the time the 50s came around, uh, again, I can't get the name right, but a French French mathematician, and he and Goodwin were friends. So Goodwin thought he could put Marx's vision of cycles in capitalism in a mathematical form. And he was a Marxist. That's why he had to leave America. Mm. That's why he went to England initially at Cambridge University. Also, he moved to Italy. Um, during the McCarthy era. This during the, getting away from the McCarthyist mm. madness of America. And isn't it strange to imagine America everything being mad? I mean, it's only no, been no. since Donald Trump that it's been mad. No, I'm, I find it hard to imagine America being normal. I don't know. Exactly. So, when was that? <laughs> I, I think before the before, I think before 1496. Yeah, maybe. Most likely. Anyway, so the madness of the McCarthyist period drove him out. But he had this vision, it should be possible to put a mathematical cycle into predator-prey terms. And then, I don't know, he would have read Marx long before this, but in Chapter 25 of Volume 1 of Capital, there's a completely out-of-character 
statement by Marx of a cyclical system, because in most of capital, Marx made the assumption that the wage was equal to subsistence. That was it. But suddenly, he's just off on a tangent, literally, and says that the wage depends upon the level of economic activity. So he said, what you have, you, if you see, if you start with um, wages being uh, below equilibrium, let's use that initial term, um, then there'll be high levels of profits. The high level of profits will mean a high level of investment that will drive employment up. Employment will rise because of the rise in the employment rate. Workers will demand more of the right because the, because you'll get higher. Uh, that will reduce. That means the pro capital will get less profits than they expect. They yep. will decide to invest less. Investment will decline. You will have a, a rising level of unemployment. That will finally mean wage wage uh, levels fall, and that will restore the gap that enables capitalists to reinvest again. Right. So that was the cyclical vision that Marx had, and it's a beautiful piece of writing. Only about but it's a, it's a similar theme to what we're into. I mean, again, yeah. it's sort of like over-accumulation, over-investment yeah. and over-accumulation. Yeah, and, and, and because you're out of the, unless you're in equilibrium, you won't get to equilibrium. Mm. Okay, So so Goodwin put the mathematics together, and the basic argument is that you know profit is output minus wage, the wage bill. The wage bill is the wage rate times the level of employment. Uh, capitalists, he had investing all their profits, which was a simplifying assumption. So Y minus Y times L is investment. That will then give you, a when you have a low level of wages and a low level of employment, that will give you a high profit share and therefore a high incentive to invest. As you invest, you drive up, first of all, employment, then you drive up the wage rate. The increase there reduces the rate of profit. You get to the peak of the boom and capital is getting less than they expected. They invest less. And this, in the simple model he had, they simply had less to invest. Okay, why am, invest, profit is equal to output minus wages times labor. If uh, our wages times labor are growing faster than, than output, then the profit will fall. Okay, and therefore you invest less, therefore you slow down. So you've got a cyclical behavior. And when you look at the mathematics of the, the system, it had a, what's called a neutral equilibrium. Okay, it was neither an attractor nor a repeller. Okay. So you would therefore, if you started, say, one inch away from equilibrium, you'd always cycle one inch away from equilibrium, okay? And, and you would not converge or move away. And that was... The uh, reason for that being? Uh, well, in, in terms of the, the, the verbal argument, you, Marx would say well, you, you would get a, restore the uh, old level of profit, whether the level of wages be equal to above or below what they were beforehand. But it's a cyclical uh, behaviour. Uh, but mathematically, <laughs> it comes down to the characteristics of a matrix again. And when you when you when you work out a, like a, a, a matrix is two dimensional by or more by definition, okay. But you, when you have a, a like if you if you imagine like a linear system, uh, population the rate of change of population is the rate of population growth times population. Okay? Now, it's, it's the rate of population growth is positive, you get rising population, negative falling, zero, you get constant population. So a similar thing applies when you get to a matrix. It has a property which is like zero in the scalar system. Um, so, and you can break it into a, a side that gives you whether you converge or diverge from equilibrium and then whether you cycle or don't cycle. Okay, and the properties that Goodwin's model had gave you no tendency towards the equilibrium. So what's called the real part of it was zero, but a tendency towards cycles. What's called the imaginary or complex part was non-zero and gave you cyclical behaviour. Because I think of a cycle, and I think you are going back to at some point. You go back to where, where you, you started were from, from, and you don't go towards equilibrium. 
Right. Okay, so the equilibrium's in the middle and you orbit around it. Right. Think about the moon. Thank God it hasn't reached equilibrium yet. Yeah, yeah. But it, but but we do know where the moon's going to be. Yeah, because we're following a dynamic path. Right. Okay? And so this dynamic path in Goodwin's model gave you permanent cycles. But when people are arguing for equilibrium, isn't that precisely what they're arguing, that we are wavering from a point, um, but we but know they, where they, but we the know The neoclassicals we, we, believe that they, they don't even do stability analysis. When you look at how the mathematics that economists get taught, they don't even look at whether the equilibrium is stable or not. They simply assume that it's stable. Mm. Or they say human behavior can work out the stable path and get there. The real world, you know, if your system's unstable, uh, it'll stay that way. And its manifestations will be different, but it will remain unstable. So Goodman was looking at the mathematics of unstable systems. And the very first, the most influential one was this growth cycle that gave you permanent cycles at a permanent distance from equilibrium. And then he went on to generalize that into chaotic economic dynamics. So let me quote what he's written about his his model, which is pretty much as you describe. But actually, he's done it. He has done it. There's no equation in this. This is several sentences he's managed to avoid. It. This is 1972. Uh, he says, as real wages go up, profits go down. If profits go down, savings and investments lag. At least I think this is him writing it. If profits go down and savings and investment lag, slowing up creation of new jobs but the labor force is continually growing both through natural increase and through men released by technological progress mm. the reserve army of labor grows uh, wages lag behind the greater productivity profits rise and accumulations accelerate back up to a high level this in turn gradually reduces unemployment wages rise and so it goes on indefinitely. And that's basically, yeah, and that was what Marx wrote verbally and what Goodwin wrote there as well. And what he did was work out the mathematics of that in a simple two-dimensional system where yeah. one is the, the income distribution, so that's the wages share, and the other is the employment rate. And the interesting thing is in a predator-prey model, there's obviously a predator and a prey. Mm. When you apply it to capitalism, you've got workers and capitalists. Who do you think of the predator? I should imagine it would be the capitalists. It was actually Steve. the workers. Oh, really? The mathematics of it, when you work out the like, in, in terms of this, the sign of the components of it, the capitalists, the workers are harvesting the capitalists. And that might even make Elon, uh, Elon, Elon Musk enjoy Goodwin. But yeah, and it's technically speaking, the predators and the capitalists in in in, in the the predators in capitalism are the workers. Right. We've got to do a podcast on Elon Musk as well, by the way. Oh, do we? Okay. <laughs> well, I would, I would just want to see how your uh, your opinions change, given that you're an Elon Musk fanboy, and now the guy the guy seems to be becoming a right wing nut job. Or do yeah, you, I you... mean that's partly the the, the pressures of the, the crazy world in which he lives. Yeah, uh, there's that's definitely concerning. It is. Anyway, look, next week, who are we going to talk about next week? Uh, my screen's gone off. That's not particularly helpful, is it? Uh, Bill Phillips we're going to look at. Uh, he's oh, a fascinating the Phillips man. Curve. And, uh, let's, let's talk a bit more about the personal side there because mm. the most fascinating personal story of all, I think, is Bill Phillips's personal story. Right, a Kiwi, uh, basically the son of a Kiwi farmer, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Self, self-educated in many, many ways and yeah. just brilliant and daring and modest all in one. Right, excellent. All of that next week. I think mm. uh, hopefully someone took something out of uh, today. Uh, and, <laughs> read, again, to read to read Goodwin properly, yeah, go and read Blatt. Okay, right. Blatt explains that cycle beautifully, both the mathematics and the verbal. Great, excellent, very good. Catch you next week, Steve. Okay. The debunking economics podcast. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.